Hello, good evening guys. Glad you're here. We're gonna go ahead and dive right in. Um, I say this often, but tonight I actually mean it. We're gonna get done relatively quickly. Um, you'll, you may notice there's only one page of notes even. Uh, and that's because tonight is a bit of introduction essentially to the letters of First and Second Timothy, uh, to who Timothy was, who wrote the letters to Timothy, where was Timothy, what were the letters all about. We're gonna cover some of that introductory stuff. And uh, although it is introductory, it's not basic and it's not um, pointless. It's actually incredibly helpful when we get next week into First Timothy chapter two, uh, verses 11 through 15, which is kind of the central passage when it comes to the debate or discussion around women in ministry. Of course, that passage says, uh, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So when we go over the next two weeks, I think we'll end up spending two weeks on this passage. Um, when we go line by line, word by word through all of that, uh, I don't want us to get so lost in the details that we kind of lose the overall scope of what's going on and who's writing and why they're writing and, and things like that. So that's what we want to focus on tonight is a little bit of this context regarding uh, that passage and that'll help inform how we understand it, okay? So the first thing that you want to know about this um, when it comes to 1 Timothy, um, this is a part of a larger section of the New Testament that is all written to the same church. That's your first blank. Um, Acts 18 through 20, the book of Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Revelation 2, they all discuss the same church, the church in Ephesus. So no other church in the New Testament gets as much coverage, essentially, as the church in Ephesus. It is a very important congregation, and um, there is a long and, and kind of important trajectory that the church of Ephesus is on from the beginning in the book of Acts all the way through uh, the end in uh, Revelation 2. So here's what I want to do. I first want to show you where Ephesus is kind of in the world so you have a sense of what we're talking about here. Um, this is a picture, of course, of the Mediterranean region. You can see that Ephesus is kind of in the middle and just to the right. It's a city in modern-day Turkey. So this is smack dab in the Middle East. It's a little bit north and west of Jerusalem and Israel and things like that. You'll see that it is just across the, um, which sea is that? The Aegean Sea, I believe, um, from Athens and Corinth, the city that we talked about last week. It's not terribly far away from Philippi, which is where the book of Philippians was written to. And then you see Rome is also in the same area as well. So this is a, a condensed kind of section of the world. Uh, a lot of these churches that we see referenced in the New Testament were relatively close to one another. They weren't super far away. Another thing to keep in mind when it comes to um, the church at Ephesus is that Ephesus is one of the few places that early on had multiple house churches in the same city. Rome was another example of this. In some of these cities and towns, there was essentially one church. There might be 30, 40, 50 people that met in a house, and that's all the believers in that city. But in Ephesus, there was a, a really wide network of churches, and um, the one that we'll be talking about is kind of the primary one, but there were many others that were around as well. So the letters that were written to the leaders of this church and to this church in particular, they were meant not to just to be kept at like this one specific congregation, but they were meant to be shared around these different churches that were also um, in Ephesus at the time, okay? Um, let me give you a bit of a timeline on Ephesus, okay? And then we're going we're gonna to dig in. Um, so the church at Ephesus was founded in about 50 AD. So this is roughly 20 years after the Apostle Paul, I mean, after uh, Jesus died and resurrected. And then the Apostle Paul started going on these missionary journeys. And it was during Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 18 that the scripture tells us he arrived in the city of Ephesus. He found some believers there. He was like, 
hey, have you guys been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what's the Holy Spirit? They had only learned about John the Baptist's baptism. And so uh, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then a congregation is kind of formed there. Uh, Paul begins to teach and preach, but eventually he leaves, and he goes on to start churches in other areas around that sea that I just showed you. And then um, in, in 55 AD, so four or five years later, the apostle Paul takes a second missionary journey, and he goes to some new places to start churches, but he's also like, let's go check on the churches that I started last time I took a trip. And so one of the places that he went back to was Ephesus. And you can read about his revisit to the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter number 19. We're actually going to read most of that chapter tonight. But um, he was basically kind of like, you know, when he left them, they were just this tiny little fledgling church with a small handful of people. And then they've really started to grow and he's strengthening them and helping them to become this kind of church network that we've talked about. But by the time we get to AD 60, the church is like, one of the strongest in early Christendom, okay? They're flourishing is what we might say. Um, this is when the letter to the Ephesians was written, all right? Um, so Paul writes them a letter. He's like, hey, haven't seen you guys in quite a while. I want you to know I hear amazing things. You guys are crushing it. Keep serving Jesus. You do you, and I'll come by and see you soon. Uh, they're doing really, really well when he writes the letter to Ephesians. But something happens from that time, around AD 60, uh, to about five years later, AD 65, 66, maybe as late as 67, there are some things that start to happen. The church starts to drift. Things start to go awry. This used to be the flagship congregation that Paul planted, uh, but over time, things have gotten a little iffy. So it's during this period that Paul writes the letters to first, Tim or he writes the first letter to Timothy, and then he writes the second letter to Timothy. Timothy was the pastor or the elder of the church at Ephesus. And so this letter, like the, the letter to the Ephesians was written to the congregation at large. Um, Acts 18 through 20 tells how the church was started. Then first and second Timothy are like letters to the pastor in which Paul is correcting and addressing some problems that have kind of crept up. And he's basically saying, hey, look, I left you there for a reason. You need to make sure you do the thing that I told you to do. And we'll cover what that is tonight. Then we jump ahead about 20 or 25 years, and um, the only one of the original 12 apostles that's left is John. You guys may know that. All the other apostles had been martyred um, probably by about AD 70. But John, although he wasn't ever martyred, he was eventually exiled. And he wrote the book of Revelation while he was in exile. And if you read Revelation, we tend to think of it as like this weird prophecy about the future and end times and stuff. But of course, the first few chapters aren't that way at all. It's literally the Spirit of God moving John to write small, very short letters to different congregations around this exact area. Um, so all of the churches of Asia are in this area that you're looking at right now. And one of the churches that he writes to is Ephesus, and um, he, he gives them a little bit of praise, but he makes it really clear that uh, by you know 40 to 50 years after the church had been founded, they're really struggling. They may even be dying or on life support. One of the things that John says to them is you've left your first love, right? You don't love me, Jesus is speaking through John. He says, you don't love me the way that you used to. You don't love one another the way that you did back in the beginning. And so he calls them to return to their first love, or he says, I'm gonna snuff out your candle, which is essentially a way of saying like, you guys aren't gonna be around anymore. So interestingly, um, we, we learn from church history, this is not recorded in the Bible, because Revelation was basically the latest thing, the, the last thing that was written. Um, so we don't have anything that was written after like 80, 90, 95, somewhere in that neighborhood. But we learn from church history that the congregation at Ephesus basically dissolved. It, it just disappeared. We don't know exactly why, um, but sometime in the mid-2nd century, that's your next blank there, um, church history tells us that the Ephesian congregation ceased to exist sometime in the second century. Um, and again, we don't really know why, but it seems pretty clear that the Ephesian church had gone through a life cycle that frankly every church goes through. Um, this is something we try to remind ourselves of a lot. There is not a single church today that was around in Paul's day. Every single church is born, they grow, they're mature and flourishing, then they get older and weaker, and eventually they die. 
That's natural. It's not even a bad thing. Like we need new expressions of church and all that sort of stuff. And the Ephesian church had gone through essentially its entire life cycle uh, within 150 years of being started. Then um, later on, Constantine becomes the uh, emperor and he's like, Christianity is amazing and I'm the emperor. So everybody's like, well, if you're the emperor and you love Christianity, now we love Christianity. And so um, they kind of baptized the government in Rome. And uh, at that point, they started working to revive a lot of the early Christian churches, um, you know, that had been uh, that had been lost. And Ephesus is one of them. So eventually, Ephesus becomes pretty important again in church history, but not before it died and then had to be resurrected. Okay, so. The reason that I bring all of this up, I know that's a lot of history and stuff, but like what I want you to know is the Bible tells us a lot about what was going on in Ephesus. So we're not making a bunch of educated guesses here. The, the Bible spells out a lot of this. But the letters to First and Second Timothy, which is where this very controversial passage about a woman keeping silent and submissive, not teaching a man, never having authority, that text was written during this season of drifting that we've got here on the screen that Paul is writing specifically to address a church that is moving away from uh, their commitment to Jesus, their commitment to mission. Things are, are starting to go badly in the church. And so he's writing to them to hopefully straighten some things out. Okay. Wouldn't a complementarian say to what you just said, yeah, that's absolutely true. Too many women were getting involved. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's why they were drifting. Sure. Sure. Um, that's one way to read it. But I think like when you pay attention to the evidence within the letter of first and second Timothy, you find out that there was actually a much deeper problem. We can go ahead and move to the next blank there. The major problem facing the Ephesian church was false teachers, false teachers. So uh, the problem we're going to see was not female teachers. The problem was false teachers. And we know this very, very plainly from 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. Amber, if you want to read this, just this little green section right here. Yeah, this letter is from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by the command of our God, our, our Savior in Christ Jesus, who gives us hope. I am writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. When I left for, the Macedo for Macedonia, I urge you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Okay, so um, we, we read here in verse number three the exact issue that's going on. The whole reason Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus, the whole reason that he's writing this letter is that there is false teachers, there are false teachers, there is false teaching that is starting to take root in the Ephesian church. And so everything we read in First and Second Timothy needs to be read through the lens of false teachers that are gaining a foothold within the congregation. If not, then we, we kind of miss the historical precedent for Paul writing this letter in the first place. Like, it's really important that you understand that. Now, I want to note that it's not Timothy who is doing the false teaching, okay? We're going to see there are some men in the church that are spreading false teaching, and the women have bought it hook, line, and sinker. We don't know exactly what these dudes were saying, but the women ate it up. And they were the ones that were actually spreading it, furthering it throughout the congregation. And so um, Timothy's not the bad guy here. Timothy is the guy that Paul has established. He's put him in charge, essentially, to get things right. Interestingly, uh, you remember we talked about Priscilla and Aquila? That, that was like that ministry couple that tutored Apollos and taught him the way of the Lord more accurately and stuff like that. By the time we get to 2 Timothy, Paul has sent them to be the actual pastors. They're actually the ones who are hosting, leading the Ephesian church. And Timothy is more there as like a hired gun kind of thing. He's like the outside theologian that's brought in to be the bad guy in a lot of ways and to stand up for the truth and make sure that this heresy, this false teaching, this false doctrine doesn't continue to get spread. That's funny. So the church that I grew up in, um, the, the pastor was really good about talking about money. Oh, yeah. And so, like, our congregation would give a lot, mm -hmm. but people would hire him yeah. to come speak at their church 
to teach about tithing and teach about money because those pastors were too nervous mm-hmm. or too it didn't have the words or whatever and that's kind of what I've like pictured this being is like he's the hired guy <laughs> who can actually speak the truth because nobody else mm-hmm. knows how yeah well and I mean we know a little bit about Timothy so we know that Timothy was a Jewish guy that his grandmother was a faithful Jewish lady. Um, I think her name is Eunice, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, She's a very, very wise, committed Jewish lady. She taught Timothy the scriptures since he was a young boy. Um, I'm pretty, I think I'm remembering this right in the moment. like Timothy had been raised in the faith. He had a a ton of scriptural knowledge and um, Paul placed him in this position specifically because he had an understanding of what was true, what was right, what was sound doctrine, all that sort of thing. So um, now uh, we said that the problem was false teaching. We see there in verse three, he put Timothy there uh, to stop those who were teaching what is contrary to the truth. So what was the false doctrine that these men were spreading in the church? Paul doesn't lay it out super clearly. What we kind of gather from reading through these two letters is that the false teaching wasn't like a single doctrine that they kind of got hung up on, okay? So if we go to the book of Galatians, Paul writes a letter to the Galatian church, and there is one false doctrine that they've accepted. It's a it's a, a doctrine or a, a Uh, worldview called Gnosticism. It means secret knowledge. Essentially, like, if you're familiar with, like, the secret and all of that (laughs) that we see in our world, that's modern-day Gnosticism. It's literally the same stuff. It's just recycled and repackaged. Um, And so... um, Paul is addressing Gnosticism. That is the heresy in the Galatian church. In the Ephesian church, the heresies and false teaching seem to be super wide-ranging. It's not just one, but it's like a whole slate of false teachings. So we see that... um, Timothy, or Paul rather, goes into great detail with Timothy uh, about misunderstandings and misapplications of the Old Testament. So he doesn't say exactly what they are. It's like Timothy knew what he was talking about, but we don't know exactly what it was. There was something in regards to the Old Testament law that people were fighting about. Some people were claiming to be Old Testament scholars, and they knew what the truth was. And Paul's like, they're idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. Like, that's really what he says. Um, So there was that aspect of it. He also spent spends a lot of time in this letter addressing a Christian perspective or understanding of wealth. So this is where like the scripture says, command those who are rich in this world to be rich in good deeds. Um, This is where we read, um, you know, like uh, the love of money is the root of all evil or all kinds of evil and things like that. So wealth seemed to be a big problem in the Ephesian church. There were also issues with marriage. So he specifically highlights some false teachers that were saying that it was a bad idea to get married, like Christians should remain single for their entire life. Uh, There were teachers within the Ephesian church that were denying the resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the saints. And then there were all of these tensions and conflicts over the relationship, right relationships between men and women. So like, it's like, where do you even start with this church? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I'm Paul, which of those is most important? I don't even know because they're all pretty important. If we're comparing Galatian to Ephesian church, like it wouldn't, because Ephesian is addressed so much, wouldn't you also say that Ephesian church was bigger? that they flourished more, Mm -hmm. that they were more prominent. And and if you're- Probably. If you're to make that assumption, then you could also say a bigger church has more of the people who sit in the back row, Mm -hmm. who live on the milk, who don't know how to self-feed, who are more likely to buy in into false teaching, who are more likely to spread false teaching. And so it's completely feasible to me. It's not like, wow, the devil really got a hold of this church. Like that can be true. But at the same time, in any super big church, there's more possibility for the people who are just sitting and not self-feeding. Like, that's something that we all need to be aware of, right? Mm-hmm. This is a lesson for us all. Like, the bigger that we get, the more that we need to be discipling people and teaching them the truth so that they're they're feeding themselves and not just grabbing on to whatever feels good and sounds good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there was a time in the book of Acts where Paul goes and he's um, evangelizing, teaching, and preaching in an area called Berea. And the Bible says the Bereans basically don't trust a word he says. They're like... I don't care what you say. I want to know if what you say lines up with the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And um, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, said the Bereans were more noble than any of the other people that Paul reached during that time because they were willing to test what he was saying against 
the Old Testament scriptures. And I tell you guys all the time, like if I say something wrong, call me out on it. If you have questions about how I say relates to something that seems to be different in Old or New Testament, then let's talk about it. You know what I mean? Like, don't go leave a Google review that's like, this guy doesn't believe the Bible. Like, let's talk about it. Maybe I am misunderstanding and God would use me, or use you rather, to help correct me and and vice versa. It could be that maybe you've misunderstood in some way and we can sharpen one another. So yeah. Okay. So what was the false doctrine? Is like a whole bunch of false doctrines and um, it was really getting uh, wild and out of control. Now, while we don't know everything that the false doctrines entailed, one thing that we do know absolutely for certain is that the false doctrine was spread by the women of the church. So women is the the next blank there. I'm not picking on any ladies here, okay? We're going to talk about why this was. Everybody agrees on this. Complementarians agree on this. Um, Egalitarians agree on this. Conservative scholars, liberal scholars, everybody is really clear from the evidence of these two letters that although men were the teachers, women were the proponents. They were the ones who were spreading and sharing this false teaching around. And we're actually going to talk about, we know exactly why it was happening. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So look at what uh, 2 Timothy chapter number 3 verses 6 through 9 has to say here, okay? Um, This passage is like super interesting. There are a few things we'll talk about here, but it it makes it pretty clear. They are the kind who work... Oh, sorry, let me interrupt. By they, Paul is talking about the false teachers, okay? Ah. He's talking about these false teachers here. They are the kind. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burned with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Burdened with the guilt of sin. Oh, burdened. Yep, can't read. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as James and Jamborees. Is that Could be. <laughs> sure. I would say Jean Bray, but yeah. Yeah, that's... Probably fancy more it up, making fancy. Yeah. Opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. Come on. But they won't get away with this for long. Someday someone will recognize what fools they are, just as with James and Jamboree. <laughs> okay. Jean and Jambre. Uh, so uh, who are these guys? Does anybody know who these guys are? Okay, what's really weird here is that um, they're referenced in this passage like everybody's going to know who they are. They opposed Moses, so this has to be around the time of the Pentateuch. But here's the crazy thing. Those names never occur in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So um, these are names that were given through like um, tradition and oral um, tradition and interpretation of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. Remember, Moses has this, actually Aaron and Moses have this showdown with uh, Pharaoh's magicians and Pharaoh's magicians are able to duplicate the signs for a certain amount of time and um, traditionally in Hebrew thought these guys were named Jean and Jean Bray um, so anyway uh, yeah so he's referencing them and he's basically saying look these these false teachers are just like them they might be able to wow you for a little bit but eventually you're going to discover that they're bankrupt their their faith is counterfeit they have a depraved mind but what I want you to really notice is verse 6 where Paul says they have been working their way into people's homes and winning the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. He says again, such women are forever following new teachings but never able to understand the truth. Um, Remember what we talked about a week or two ago and we said that in the Roman world and in Jewish households as well, a woman's job was to stay at home, take care of things around the house. So um, you could imagine that like that, that took up a lot of their time for sure. If they had large households, that could be like a really big endeavor to care for servants and land and, you know, kids and all of these different things. But you could also imagine that there might be a fair bit of free time for ladies who are trapped at home with nothing to do all. There's no internet, you know what I mean? They, you know, so like... Uh, basically, Paul says that these women who are kind of trapped at home, they have nothing to do except to hang out and talk with one another. And remember, we've, we've mentioned the fact that like women were expected to show hospitality in the ancient world. This is a way that you brought honor to your household, to your husband, all these different things. So if a man of God, air quotes for those listening via podcast, um, if a man of God shows up at your house and says, you know, I want to sh- teach you the faith. You're going to be like, nobody ever wants to teach me the faith. I love it. Let's do it, right? Um, and, or they hear something that a, 
air quotes, man of God says. And they come back, and the only uh, social outlet that they have is other housewives, other women who are trapped at home. They've got nothing to do but sit around and shoot the breeze with each other, right? You can imagine how through that network of housebound women, if one of them started to get real stoked about a false teaching, it could spread really quickly. Now, look, I'm going to make a comparison here, and it might get me in trouble. I might cut this from the podcast. I don't even know. I didn't plan for this. It only occurred to me in the moment. What is um, about to happen? I'm, setting, I'm really setting this up here. Like, it's not really that different from, like, multi-level marketing. And I, I mean this in the best possible way. Like, please, I'm not pooping on anybody's, like, income stream or anything, okay? But in the same way that, like, we know the value of reaching out to our social network and the opportunity to influence and make money or whatever the case may be, you could also use that for spiritual influence as well. And in this case, the women were not using it for positive spiritual influence. It was, it's like, when you read First and Second Timothy, if you don't understand this, that there is false teaching that has infiltrated primarily through the females in the church. Um, if you don't understand that, you will read the Bible and believe that either Paul specifically or God in general really doesn't have a very high opinion of women. Like, so read through, um, I don't think I have this passage. Um, somebody grab, grab the Bible, grab your phone, look up 1 Timothy 5, and then read verses 11 through 15. 1 Timothy 5. 11 through 15, I don't care what translation, it doesn't matter. When you hear this passage, 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 15, when you hear this passage, you're going to be like, man, Paul was harsh. Like, you might have got away with saying stuff like that back in the 40s and 50s, but like, I don't think you could say that publicly anymore. And yet, there it is. It's recorded right in scripture. So 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 15, somebody have that? Just read it out loud if you've got it. The younger widow should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them for I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. Ooh, okay. Let me, let me explain to you briefly what's going on. What's the list? The list. That sounds so <laughs> ominous. Okay, so in the early church, if a woman was a widow, right? So what does James say? He said, pure religion, faultless before God, is to care for widows and orphans in their distress. In the early church, if a woman was a widow, she would be enrolled into a program in the church in which the church paid her bills paid for her to have food, make sure she had housing, clothing, basic necessities. And in this particular passage, Paul is addressing the list of widows in the church in Ephesus, and there's a problem. The problem that's come up is that uh, because it was a, a time in history and a place in the world in which mortality was really high and men died a lot, uh, there were a lot of widows. And what would happen is if you were to be enrolled as a widow of the church, you would make a vow of commitment to the Lord. This would involve a vow not to marry again, not to date, not to be romantically involved with anybody. You are going to commit yourself to service in the church, okay? Uh, interestingly enough, we won't, um, we won't dig into this or make too much out of it, but the, the word that's used here for the older females is presbyteros, the female version of presbyteros, which is like the male elders of the church. And like, this is one of those times where it's like, he probably just means older women, but like also the way that he lists it, like we're not going to do this, okay? But read the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 5 that a woman must possess in order to be enrolled on the list of widows. It is almost verbatim the list of qualifications that are required for a male elder in 1 Timothy 2. Hello. Like, you know, I, I, again, you can't make too much out of that. That's not a solid argument in and of itself, but it's dang interesting. Anyway, so in, in chapter 5, Paul says the problem is there are women who are making these vows. They're getting enrolled. They're getting support from the church. And then he literally says because, like, they're passionate, they're young, passionate women, they want a man in their life, they are going and getting married. They're breaking their vows. 
then the church is in this weird spot where it's like, well, we have been paying your bills, but we can't pay your bills anymore. But wait, I thought you loved me. And it's like, it's a mess. And so he says, don't let these younger women get on the roll for widows. They got to be 60 years or older before they can be enrolled um, because they may want to get married and then they have to break their vow. And two, he said, I don't want to take this, I don't want to press this too far. If they're enrolled in church welfare, okay, which is essentially what this is, and it's a wonderful, beautiful thing, um, but if they're enrolled in church welfare, then basically there is not much incentive for them to do anything if they don't want to do anything because all their needs are met. So then what are they going to do? Well, they're going to go house to house and they're going to talk and men and women, what happens when we talk long enough? We start to gossip. We start to meddle in people's business. Uh, this is not an exclusively female problem, but in this culture, it was a problem that was manifesting itself among the females, okay? So we know that uh, the false doctrine was spread by the women of the Ephesian church. And if you, if you forget that or misunderstand that, then it just seems like Paul really doesn't have a high opinion of women. He does, okay? So uh, why was the false teaching so effectively targeting women in the Ephesian church? Why was it that these ladies were buying it hook, line, and sinker? It doesn't seem like the men were, or at least not to the same extent, not the men in general. Um, and why wasn't this false teaching taking hold in other cities, in Galatia, in Philippi, in these other places? I think the answer uh, is likely tied to the Artemic cult in Ephesus. Artemic, A-R-T-E-M-I-C, Artemic cult in Ephesus. So um, in order to explain what I'm talking about here, what the cult of Artemis or the Artemic cult, in order to explain what that is, what it is, we need to go back to the founding of the church in Ephesus, okay? So I told you this is explained in uh, Acts chapter number 18, Acts chapter number 19. And what I want to do is I want to read this long section. I'm going to read it because it's, it's crazy long. It's like six slides. But, um, <laughs> but I want, like, I just, it seems unfair to ask you Thank guys you. to read so much um, or ask you to read so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I want you to see is I want you to get a sense of a couple of things. One, the culture of the city of Ephesus that Timothy was trying to minister in, and then the religious environment that was going on there. This is wild stuff, okay? Acts chapter number 19, verse 1, the Bible says, while Apollos, there's the guy we've been talking, we've talked about him a few times, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. Now, you'll notice the way is capitalized there. Um, you may know, you may not, that originally we were not called Christians. We were called followers of the way. That's what early believers were called because Jesus was, he said, the way, the truth, and the life. And so Christians were called followers of the way. And then it was in, at, at Antioch, the city of Antioch, where they were uh, initially called Christians. Uh, interestingly, I've said interestingly like five times tonight. I don't know why I keep saying that. Interestingly, um, the, the word Christian was originally meant as an insult. The first time it was applied to followers of the way. Christian means little Christ, baby Christ, tiny Christ. It's like, it's like Christian, okay? Um, it, it, the, the word was meant as an insult in the sense of like, you guys follow a dead guy. You got like you're going to be snuffed out the same way your savior was snuffed out. Like you guys are so, you're as silly as he was thinking he could go up against the Roman Empire, right? So the word Christian was actually an insult. They they were originally known as followers of the way. Okay. So Paul left the synagogue, took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. That's a, an amazing name right there. <laughs> Uh, this went on for the next two years. So Spall, uh, Paul, Spall, Paul spent more than two years uh, inside the city of Ephesus so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now look at what happens uh, a little later in the passage. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way, the Christians. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek god, uh, goddess Artemis. Artemis, there's the, the word that we referenced. He kept many craftsmen busy 
He called them together along with others employed in similar trades and he addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, she will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, there, the anger of the crowd boiled. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they began shouting. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go into the amphitheater too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, who were friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing, some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. This is like a true riot. People are hyped and they have no clue why. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized that he was a Jew, so he wasn't like a part of the Artemic cult, okay? Uh, when they realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and they kept it up for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. At last, the mayor of Ephesus was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from the heavens. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, but they've stolen nothing from the temple, and they've not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, then they can be settled in legal assembly. I'm afraid that we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there is no cause for all of this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we don't know what to say to them. So then he dismissed the crowd and they dispersed. All right. This is labeled in the Bible as the riot in Ephesus. Like this was a really dangerous moment. And there's a lot going on here that you might not fully understand. So you see that this all started because a guy who made little statues, little um, idols of a Greek goddess named Artemis was losing business. And uh, he was mad about that. And so he tried to get the crowds all riled up. Okay. So who was Artemis? What was this all about? How might it have influenced what was going on in the letters of First and Second Timothy? All right. So Artemis was this lady right here. She is one of the most important goddesses in the Greek and Roman religions. So in Greek, she was called Artemis. But in uh, Roman mythology, she was called Diana. Same goddess, remember? Uh, that's your blank there at the bottom of the page, uh, Diana. Remember that when the Romans conquered the Greeks and took over, they were like, actually, we kind of like all your gods, but they have stupid names. We're going to give them better names. And that's what they did. Like everything else about them is exactly the same. So um, what we know about uh, Diana or Artemis was that she was the goddess of the hunt, so that's why she's often pictured holding a stag or a deer because she was like always, her job was essentially to be the huntress among the Godhead and that she was the, the patron goddess of childbearing, okay? Um, she was believed to be, a, like uh, believed, she was like uh, claimed to be a virgin her entire life. So like there were all these levels of godhood in the Greek and Roman mythology. And um, one of the highest gods was Aphrodite, who we're all pretty familiar with. She was the god of lust, the god of love, the god of sex. And Artemis, because she refused to participate in romance with any of the other gods, she basically was free from the influence of Aphrodite. And so she was seen as pure and chaste and undefiled in a way that many of the other gods and goddesses were not. She was supposedly the twin sister of Apollo. Apollo is like one of the most important gods in the um, Roman world. He was the sun god. She was the moon god. Okay, they were twins that were supposedly born at the same time. Their dad was Zeus. 
like the big one. And then um, he had an affair with another goddess named Leto. And um, they were the result of his affair in, in the mythology, all right? Now, what, what's really fascinating about her story is that she's born, she's twins. So she's born like at the same, same day, same time as her brother Apollo. But the mythology says she was born first and as soon as she was born, she turned around and midwifed her own brother being born. That's, that's what they believe, that she like actually helped her mom give birth to her brother. So you can see why she would be the goddess of childbearing, because according to the myth, she was doing that from the very beginning. Um, also because she had never, like, she, she was never with a man, she wasn't under the influence of Aphrodite and stuff. She was seen pure and chaste in a way, like having a child was a dangerous thing, right? Like back in the day, that was the thing that you were most likely to die from as a woman. And so having, having a goddess who was not um, afflicted in the same way that you were would be a good thing, right? So she was the patron goddess, patron saint, if we could use that word, of childbearing, uh, women, all those different I things. I can totally see in this moment, like as we're talking through this, mm -hmm. how women of the early church who are not rooted, who are not grounded, mm -hmm. can hear Diana's story or or have root in that more so mm -hmm. and be like yeah but I need to worship this and and I'm gonna get pregnant if I and you know all of those things yeah. that they can just buy into yeah we'll talk about that like there what ends up happening is there becomes a syncretism basically a picking and choosing from Christianity and from the Artemic cult blending these two things together we see people do that every single day in 2022 they're not worshiping artemis but they're worshiping you know buddha or some other god like figure and they're just blending the parts of it that they like together and obviously that's a no-go from a scriptural standpoint um the artemic cult itself was led by priestesses so they, there wasn't like a male high priest, but it was women. And they believed that essentially women were a better form of the ideal than men were. So like typically, um, you know, throughout society, we've had a patriarchal cultural and stuff, but the Artemic cult was matriarchal. It was led by women. They were seen as the answer, the solution. They were the good ones. Men were the bad ones. They were the cause of war and violence and rape and all these different things. And so women were the ones that were in charge. They were the ones that led. They were the ones that were promoted. And in the Artemic belief system, men were the ones who brought about evil, pain, suffering, death in the world, while women were the ones who brought about life, right? So men were wrong, women were right. Men were bad, women were good, that sort of thing, okay? Uh, the Artemic cult was headquartered in Ephesus. This was like, the Roman Empire was huge, right? It covered like a huge swath of the world, and Ephesus was the headquarters of it. So you can see, uh, this is a full recreation, reconstruction of the Temple of Diana This that's here on the screen. It was huge and expensive and elaborate. And it, there were three different versions of the temple, but it lasted for like basically a thousand years. Like it was there for a really, really long time. This is one of the original seven wonders of the ancient world. Like this is a big deal. This isn't like some random little cult in some far-flung part of the empire like this was at the heart of the roman pagan cult she was very very key and critical to what's going on and the reason that it was i don't have a picture i should have got a picture because it's really interesting so the reason that it was headquartered in ephesus and you might have actually picked up on this um if i can find it quickly it's going to be right here uh do, do, nope here um in verse number 35, the mayor is speaking, and he says, Everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Okay? Um, what happened was, at some point, we're talking like 1000 BC, 900 BC, somewhere in that time frame, there was a meteorite that fell from space and crashed in Ephesus. And they thought... This was an image or a representation of the goddess Diana. Now, we don't have the exact meteorite, but we have a bunch of 
if so I showed you this picture okay this was Diana in the very classical Greek motif this is what she looked like um, very classical you can look at um, Diana as or, or yeah Artemis uh, Diana as she was pictured in the Ephesian world and you look at her more around the time of the Apostle Paul like a thousand years later and she's really weird like she looks more like something out of um, she looks more like she's something out of like uh, Hinduism or something so like she's this she's a figure but she doesn't look quite human and she literally has like 45 breasts all over her, okay and the reason is because the meteorite that fell was very lumpy and knobby and somebody was like oh that represents this woman's parts and so anyway um, yeah so this became the epicenter for her worship in the empire like you have to understand that this was the point of pride for Ephesians. People from all over the world would make pilgrimages to come to this temple. And this is what they were known for. In fact, when one random Christian missionary showed up and he started preaching Jesus instead of Artemis, they had a riot and nearly killed people over it, right? So this is what's going on. And I think it's just fascinating to consider, and, and many theologians and scholars throughout the centuries, like going all the way back to like 1600s, so this goes back quite a ways, um, have made some connections between what Paul writes in um, chapter number two of 1 Timothy, this whole section about women being quiet and all that. You, you know, he gives this rationale in which he says, you know, Adam was formed first and not Eve, and then Adam was deceived. It wasn't, uh, Adam was not deceived. It was the woman, and she'll be saved through childbearing and stuff. Paul never says, darn that Artemis, you guys need to quit following her. But like a lot of the stuff that he's addressing is directly tied to what this cult taught in the city that he writes this letter to. And so there are a lot of theologians that have um, made this connection or this link between these two things. Um, for instance, in verse 13, where he says, for Adam was formed first and not Eve. You can read that as a complementarian and you can say, all right, Paul is saying man was first, so man is better. We spent a lot of time talking about this, like week two, when we were looking at Genesis chapter number three. And we said, listen, uh, that's not how Genesis presents the story. Adam is incomplete until his wife comes along. He's not better because he's first. He's incomplete until she actually shows up. But a complementarian would say, um, nope, he came first. And Paul is pointing out here, the fact that she came first, that he came first means that he is able and authorized to teach in a way that she is not because she was formed second. But what if we consider the local context and Paul is essentially saying, like for Adam was formed first, then Eve, not the other way around. Like you guys believe the woman was formed first and then she helped give birth to the man. But no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Go back to Genesis 2 and 3. It says that the man was formed first and then the woman. Could be that that's what he means. Verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. Unlike you guys in your little local religion who believe that men are the source of the problems in the world, but we know that actually it was the woman that was deceived. And so you guys want to elevate women, but listen, they're just as susceptible to making mistakes as you say the men are. Verse 15, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Remember, like women would pray to Artemis. They would make sacrifices to Artemis so that they could survive through giving birth. And so this may be the exact reason why Paul brings this up. Without any consideration for, for Diana or Artemis, this is such a weird non sequitur. Like, theologians have a lot of trouble understanding why. Like, we, okay, so if I'm a complementarian, I can, or if I'm, if I'm honest, I could understand how a complementarian gets to their position from verse 13. Makes total sense. I can understand how they get there from verse 14. Makes sense. What the heck does verse 15 have to do with anything about women teaching or not? It's like, it, the only thing that you might be able to argue is that Paul is saying, if women will stay in their place, then God will save them through childbirth. 
And like, I, I guess you could make that argument, but that's contrary to everything else that we read about God and his character from the Apostle Paul in particular, but from the New Testament in general. So um, I think it's really, we, we can't ignore the local influence that was going on. Um, I think personally, this explanation is more than enough to understand why Paul told these particular women not to teach. The issue was not that they were women teaching, but it was women who had bought into false teaching, false teaching which might have been influenced by the local cult that all of them grew up in. That is reason enough. We're actually going to, next week, we're going to go a whole different direction. I'm going to show you kind of a line-by-line -line interpretation that deals with these same verses uh, that doesn't rely on this Artemic cult influence. But I, I think this is like, it, there's meat to this. This, this has to be a consideration at least. Um, I like this quote. I kind of put it here at the, at the bottom of your page. It's from a, a scholar named Craig Keener. And uh, he, he wrote an article in a book called Two Views, uh, Two Views on Women in Ministry. And it's a really good book. Um, I have a copy of it, and I would recommend it to you as well, um, because they have two egalitarians that basically write out their case, and then they have two complementarians that write out their case, and then they, like, critique one another. And they, like, go back and forth. It's called a counterpoint series. And so, like, it presents a really balanced look at both sides. Anyway, in that book, he wrote this. We cannot ignore the fact that the only New Testament letter that specifically prohibits women from teaching was written to the only church we know of in which false teachers were successfully targeting women. He says here it's the only letter that specifically prohibits women from teaching. That's true. Because remember in 1 Corinthians 14, he's not prohibiting women from teaching. He's prohibiting, from them, he's prohibiting them from disrupting the worship service with their teaching or their questions or whatever it might be. Um, this is the only place where it's like very clear. He says, women, you're not supposed to teach. You need to be quiet. Sit down. Stop teaching. Quit spreading these stories, whatever it might be. But if we don't consider the false doctrine or teaching um, explanation. And we'll get into this next week. The only explanation that we're left with, and, and when you get right down to it, this is what complementarians believe. Women are more easily deceived than men. There is something about their nature. There's something ontologically true about them that makes them more susceptible. We know that because Eve screwed up and the women in Ephesus were screwing up. And Paul said they're basically doing the same thing. Why? Because that's what women do. Um, we, are, we are making a very strong statement about the mental intellectual capacities of a woman when we read this passage through a complementarian lens. Like, there really is no way around this. Complementarians will soften this, and they're like, well, no, it doesn't mean that. It's just, but like, the complementarian interpretation for 1,800 years was that women are easily deceived. You guys are weak, and you need men to teach you the truth. Um, so like, we can, we can avoid all of that if we just consider the whole reason this letter was written was because there were false teachers that were successfully targeting women within the Ephesian church.